this part of the story of Exodus reads like so many classic stories that culminate in that great battle, right? Like the battle between good and evil. The two massive powers just coming at each other full speed. It's like the battle of Helm's Deep and the two towers. I've actually seen that part. I, I haven't fully finished the series. I did get that far. It's all that. The battle of Yavin, Timothy, is that right? Yavin, Yavin, something like that. And a new hope. Big battle, first Star Wars. The Battle of Baruna and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, the Battle of the Bubbles between Blake and Reed at Snowco. Um, you have to decide who you think is good and evil in that scenario. Let's show the video. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Blake's not here on purpose. Um, the, it's like those kind of stories, right? It's just this big moment that leads into this big battle. There's an obvious positioning of power that's happening, right? Right off the bat, who's really in control. And by the way, I have no outline tonight. In case you're in outlines, I don't have one. So we're just getting into the story. Let's see where it goes. Who's really in control? That's the question of the text, right? Is it Pharaoh, who the Egyptians held to be a god in their own land, right? Pharaoh was a deity for them. Or is it the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh? A lesser God in the Egyptians' mind and a non-threat at this point for Pharaoh. You hear it in his arrogant response at that initial confrontation, right? God uh, sends Moses to confront him and he's, and he's saying, who is the Lord? I don't know this guy. Who are you talking about? He just so to, totally dismisses him. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord and I'm not going to let him go. Pharaoh believes himself to be the greater deity. And he will not listen, even for a second, to this lesser God. And so just to prove himself, what does he do? He makes matters worse for the Hebrews in his land, in slavery. He makes their lives exponentially more difficult, bricks without straw. This is that moment in the movies where you wonder, you know, how will the good guys ever get out of this situation? There's always that moment as well, the, the climax of do you just wonder, is it over for them, where the protagonist is in over his head? But for the first time, Yahweh now comes and he begins to flex, even just a little, to begin showing a little bit of his power to show who's really in control. Moses and Aaron return back to Pharaoh with these messages over and over again. If you do not let, them, let God's people go, let us go, then he will bring judgment. Ten different times they offer these warnings, and Pharaoh would not relent and let God's people go. And so God begins to pour out his wrath, his judgment on Egypt. Now this brings us to the plagues. The plagues are God's weapon of choice in this battle. Um, the first nine plagues are covered in these chapters 7 through 10. All sorts of plagues. We're not going through each one, but I want to tell you a couple of things about the plagues. The, the, there's the frogs and the locusts and the gnats and the darkness and the, the hell. And you may wonder, like, why these plagues? Like, it could have been anything, right? Most uh, Old Testament scholars give some really amazing insight to show how these particular plagues were not just random events. Um, rather, they are specifically directed to dismantle something that Egypt considered sacred in their culture, each one. So God is using symbolic images for their particular context to show his power 
against them. He is tearing down with exact precision Pharaoh and Egypt's idolatries. For example, the Nile River represented their strength in the world. So much of their wealth and life came out of that river, and God turned the river into blood. That was the first plague. He cut off their economic health. The frogs, this is the second plague, they were meant to show that God was greater than one of the Egyptian gods of fertility who was always depicted with the the head of a frog. Um, If y'all have ever seen uh, Moon Knight, I, I feel like there's like, there's some, you can see some of the parallels from all the different Egyptian gods that are shown throughout that series. You can see that through some of the symbolism in the plagues. There was the sun god Ra. Ra was the Egyptian deity who was thought to win over the darkness every morning. And God sends darkness during the day. That's the ninth plague. What is he communicating? He's showing that he is the God who sends darkness to shut down the God of light. In fact, the only light that existed in Egypt during those three days of darkness was in Israel's camp. God's light wins over Egyptian God of light. That's what God is showing through these plagues. So we learn a couple of things, very important things from the plagues. One, we learn that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one true God, and He demands full obedience to His will and to His commands. He writes the rules, and we are to respect what He has revealed about Himself. We'll see that more as we go along in this story. But two, we learn that in the event that we do not obey, He is perfectly just to cut us off, which is what he's doing to the Egyptians. He's cutting off Pharaoh. If you think about it, this is really the continuation of the story of Scripture so far. Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden with God. He told told them, if you were to obey, you will have life. But if you eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. So to obey God produces life. To disobey God brings death. Why? Because God cannot coexist with sin. Light cannot coexist with darkness. And so either we are with Him in the light of obedience or we are moving away from Him in darkness. And that leads to, in this scenario, um, judgment. So let's talk about the judgment for a second. Um, A quick story. I was thinking about this back uh, when I was a student a bunch of years ago. Kelly reminded me today that this is our 20th Valentine's Day. That's nuts. Um, You don't have to applaud, but I'm just saying I'm getting old. Uh, So that's fine. We'll take that. 20th Valentine's Day. But 20 plus years ago, when I was a a student in college and involved in the campus ministry, we would have these um, regular nights of prayer and praise. Uh, We've done that kind of thing at RUF before, where we would just go into the campus chapel or to one of the other buildings on campus and and we would just have, you know, an hour and a half, two hours of just like singing songs and praying. Similar to like the revival that's happening in Kentucky right now, except we would leave after an hour and they didn't. And they're still going like six days in, right? Um, if y'all have been reading about that. Um, so we would, you know, just be singing these songs. And one of the songs we would sing back then, and I remember this very specifically, um, it, it's the song that goes, Holy, you are holy, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are holy. Y'all know that song? It's like, Holy, you are holy. 
King of kings, Lord of lords, you are holy. But what you do with that song, each verse is just a progressive, like, another attribute of God. So it's like, worthy, you are worthy, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. You just keep singing it over and over again. You have these different attributes. I remember one of these nights, we were having one of these prayer and praise nights, and the person that was leading the music, I don't remember who it was, um, but they were like, let's just call out attributes of God. And so we would call out things like loving, you are loving, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are loving, gracious, you are gracious, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are gracious, and you would just go through. And one person called out wrathful. And so we sang, wrathful, you are wrathful. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are wrathful. It made for a very long song to call out all these attributes, but actually, and that made it pretty uncomfortable. God's wrath isn't something we talk a lot about or sing a lot about, but it is a very biblical reality and part of his character and the way he has to respond to sin and to sinners. Wrathful. You are wrathful. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is his just judgment against sin of any kind. Obey and you will live. Rebel and you will surely die. The plagues are but a glimpse into the sobering reality of the wrath of God. And here's where the battle moves from this story in the pages of the Scriptures to like the realities of our own hearts and lives. Because we have an internal battle of rebellion as well. Where we turn from God, rebel against His Word in all sorts of ways. One of the questions that maybe you had from our reading tonight is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh himself? And if you read from the text... It sounds like the answer is yes. Now, I don't pretend to fully understand this at all, but we take God at His word, and over and over again throughout the Bible, we learn that two things are simultaneously true. God is sovereign, and humans are responsible for their sin and rebellion. And both of those two things are true and held in perfect balance in Scripture. God's interaction with Pharaoh illustrates this perfect balance because, listen to this, 20 times... 20 times in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 10 times, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And 10 times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is at work in this situation, showing his power over evil. But the reality is that Pharaoh is evil because of his own rebellion against God. Both are true. He refused to listen to God. He refused to repent. He refused to worship the one true God. And sometimes God will leave us in our rebellion. And He is perfectly just in doing so. He offered Pharaoh an opportunity to repent ten times, and Pharaoh refused. And so he tasted God's wrath. Now, We need to acknowledge the same warning is given to us. Maybe you're not an evil tyrant king enslaving and abusing God's children, but are we not similar in ways that we rebel against the words of the Lord too? We battle internally, flesh versus spirit. Obey and you will live, rebel and you will live in chaos. 
And a hard thing to admit is sometimes, sometimes some of the chaos that exists in our own lives is our own doing. And it's actually in direct relationship to our rebellion against the Lord. Chaos that exists in our relationships. What we would prefer to call drama. (laughs) Sometimes comes because we are actually moving away from the Lord and we're moving toward our own selfish desires or we've made some decisions that now have consequences and are affecting our lives. I see this in our home life. Drama that exists in our home life sometimes is because of my own selfishness and my own desire for control, and it creates problems in our home. Like, chaos comes to us because of our own choices. But the warning of this passage points us to an eternal reality. Obeying you will live, rebelling you will die. By the way, these are very similar warnings for those of you who were here in the fall when we studied Revelation. Maybe you see some parallels, right? We talked a lot of, in, in the fall um, about the, like, the bowls of wrath and all of this judgment language in Revelation. The plagues actually serve as a foretaste of this ultimate divine judgment that is coming against all sin. There's a real link here. So what's the point? The, the reality is that Pharaoh's rebellion shows us our own rebellion. Our problem is his problem. God calls us to perfect obedience, yet the sin in our hearts shows us that we have not done so. In fact, we're incapable of it. The heart of the battle in this story is the battle for our own hearts. Because of our rebellion, we deserve the plagues. And I actually mean that in a real, real sense. Because of our own rebellion, we deserve to be cut off from God. Do you believe that? Like, that's a hard reality. Um, I've shared this story at some point. I don't, I don't know when I shared this. I think it was a bunch of years ago. But let me, let me give this dumb illustration of, of uh, some sin that came from my own uh, failures and, and ridiculous decisions. So when we first moved into our, uh, the house that we're currently in in Clemson um, five years ago, you know, when you move into a new, uh, a new house, a new old house, there was a lot of work to be done in this house, and we had never moved into a house where there was so much work to be done. So you're trying to figure out one project at a time. Where can you save money? Where do you have to really pay somebody to do it? And one of the small projects was my wife wanted me to paint all of the light fixtures. So we wanted them to all be black. So there's this chandelier in our dining room that was like this old like white and blue chandelier. So instead of buying new light fixtures, we were just going to spray paint the chandelier, right? A dollar project, super easy to do. Well, I thought not only will I save money, but I'll save time if I don't go, have to go through that crazy, scary process of like turning off the breaker and taking the light fixture down and taking it outside to spray paint. I thought that I could just do that inside. Like, and y'all are laughing like I'm dumb. I'm not dumb. I had a plan. So I, I build... <laughs> It's right under our dining room table. And so what I did is I knew paint would get everywhere, so I made a a provision for that. I put down newspaper all over the table, and then I got a wardrobe box. We We were moving in, right? Boxes were everywhere. So I got a wardrobe box, and I stood it on top of the dining room table. I taped it to the ceiling around the light fixture. Genius, right? I taped up newspaper on the ceiling. Brilliant. All I have to do is stick my hand into this one opening that I created, spin the chandelier one time, spray, and it would be done. Five-second project after I got everything in place, right? 
And I did. I did that. Nailed it. It was great. Beautiful light fixture. I was very impressed. I kind of let everything settle down in there, and then I took the box down, cleaned up the newspaper, called in Kelly for her to admire my great work. And she looks at it, she's like, that looks great. Good job. And then she goes, what is that on the table? I was like, I don't know what you mean. Uh, she's like, I think you got a little paint on the table right there. I was like, no, I hadn't covered a newspaper. And then she looks over here and she's like, I think there's some on the buffet right here. And realized there's black little dots on the buffet. And then we realized there were black dots on the freshly painted wall that had been painted the week before. And then we started looking and all of the boxes that had all of our stuff all in that room also had black dots everywhere. And then you turn into the hallway and into the next room on the bookshelf, there were black dots. I don't remember exactly what happened next. I think Kelly cried. I think I passed out. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was a bad day after that moment. I thought I had contained the spray within my makeshift box, right? But the reality is like everything in our house was now affected by this paint that I thought I had contained in this one space. It actually still is to this day. Like you could find some of those dots on some of that furniture. I had a lot of cleaning up to do, but I couldn't clean it all up. The black paint spotted all over my house is just a picture of how sin really does work in our lives. Like we think sin is contained to this one little area. Okay, I struggle a little bit with pride. I struggle a little bit with selfishness. But it's so much deeper than that. The reality is that our hearts are spray painted black and it has moved into every single area of our lives more than we even know. Our motivations are tainted by sin. Our thought life is tainted by sin. Our interactions with people, even if we think we're doing it right, there's probably going to be some sort of sinful motivations in almost everything that we do, right? Theologians have a category for this. They call it total depravity. Everything in our lives is truly affected by sin. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly can be. By God's grace, that's not the case. But everything in our lives has been totally affected by sin. We are so much more selfish and rebellious than we ever care to think about. We care more about what other people think about us than we care what God thinks about us. We care more about what we want to do than what God wants us to do. We care more about what makes sense to us than we care about what God tells us will make sense of our lives. We are jealous and we are lustful and we are greedy and we are prideful. We don't just live in a sinful and broken world, but we ourselves are sinners in this broken world. And sometimes, sometimes God, by His grace, moves toward us and actually dismantles something that we feel is sacred so that we will actually begin to realize just how sinful we really are. It's a sobering message, right? Should we close in prayer? No. What's our hope? Have you ever wondered... Did Jesus really have to die? You ever thought about that? Did Jesus really have to die? Couldn't there have been another way, an easier way for us to be with God? 
when we ask that question, we're not taking the reality of our sin seriously enough. Look back at our passage. God promised Israel that He would bring them out of slavery, but it would come at a cost. Look at chapter 6, verse 5, when He says, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered My covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. How will the people of God be delivered from their bondage? Through great acts of judgment. Through the outstretched arms of God. Through a redemption plan to set His people free and to bring them safely home. How does He do it? That's next week's passage. We're going to get there. But before we get there, if you're a Christian, you have to see that your deliverance also comes at a cost. How does God deliver us from our bondage to sin? Through a great act of judgment. Through the outstretched arms of God. Through a redemption plan to set His people free and to bring them safely home. If God is just, the only way that we are forgiven is if someone dies. If someone pays the price, which is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. The wages of sin is death. And in order for us to know life, Jesus took on death. He stretches out His arms on the cross And God's judgment fell directly on Him that we might go free. The plagues of our sin fell on Jesus so that His his grace might fall on people like us. In Egypt, remember, darkness fell over the earth. But in Israel's camp, there was light for three days. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, there was darkness over the face of the earth. He took on the darkness so that we could live in His light. Jesus was cut off from the Father. Remember we said our sins deserve that we are cut off. Adam and Eve, cut off. Pharaoh, cut off. You and I, because of our sin, we are cut off. On the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He was cut off from His Father so that people like us would never be cut off from His Father again. God gives up what He values, His Son, that which He holds sacred in order to deliver us from the things we think we hold sacred because He wants to gain a relationship with you. You see, God not only writes the story, but He writes Himself into the story. He not only participates in the battle, but He has entered the battle in the most real way. He takes the judgment on Himself on the cross. Jesus ultimately saves sinners like you and like me from the wrath of God. Wrathful, you are wrathful. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are wrathful. He is wrathful because He is just. And He must be just in order to be merciful, in order to offer forgiveness 
for sinners like us. I'll end with this. This is a powerful picture. I heard this last summer, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I haven't used it yet, but this is a powerful paragraph that I came across from a book written in 1980 by pastor named Paul Zoll, who wrote a book called Who Will Deliver Us? And listen to this amazing story and how he concludes. He says, a duck hunter was with his friend in a wide open barren land of southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke. Soon he could hear the sound of crackling. A wind came up and he realized the terrible truth, a brush fire was coming his way. It was moving so fast that he and his friend could not outrun it. Rifling through his pockets, he emptied all the contents of his knapsack, and soon he found what he was looking for, a book of matches. He pulled out a match and struck it. He lit a small fire around the two of them, and soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the fire to come. They didn't have to wait long. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and they braced themselves. The fire came near and blew right past them. But they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched. Fire would not pass where fire had already passed. He writes, the law's condemnation is like that brush fire. I cannot escape it. But if I stand in the burned over place, where law has already burned its way through, then I will not be hurt. Not a hair of my head will be singed. He has already disarmed it. Friends, do you know that God takes our sins very seriously? Our disobedience to His law, His judgment is very real. And so is His gracious invitation to stand in the burned over place because God will only bring judgment once. Take cover in the cross. Would you pray with me?